The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 and reading through chapter 7 and verse 13. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers, houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Itzhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pudiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a dragon. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. 
Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a dragon. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became dragons. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, grant the Holy Spirit's help now as we attend to your word. And indeed, may it bear fruit in our lives to your honor and glory for the building up of your church and for the prospering of your kingdom in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first How to Train Your Dragon movie, the, the main character, Hiccup, comes to the conclusion that what he and his Viking clan knew about dragons was all wrong, that they were misunderstood creatures. And I can remember being initially a bit leery of that storyline coming from DreamWorks on account of the Shrek movies, which basically invert all of the typical tropes for fantasy stories. But How to Train Your Dragon doesn't make the same mistake as Shrek and actually tells quite a good story, ending with some fairly profound biblical imagery. The theme of dragons is one we've considered in the past, although if my records are correct, it was all the way back in 2010 when we studied Genesis 1, verses 20 to 23 and the fifth day of creation. So maybe revisiting that text another time in detail would be in order. And perhaps we covered some of these themes when we studied Job a few years ago. But some of you may be skeptical that dragons make an appearance at all in our text, which is understandable to a degree. But it isn't as far-fetched as you might think. C.S. Lewis once remarked, We were talking of dragons, Tolkien and I, in a Berkshire bar. The big workman who had had sat silent and sucked his pipe all the evening, from his empty mug with gleaming eye, glanced toward us. I see him myself, he said fiercely. Well, this morning we come to the the latter portions of the larger narrative that we find in Exodus 5, beginning in verse 1, and coming through chapter 7 and verse 13, even as indicated in the the structure, the chiastic structure that you can see on the back of the liturgy in the sermon notes. And you'll recall how a couple of weeks ago we made our way through letters A, B, and C, considering Pharaoh's show of power and how he seems to be in charge. He's the boss calling the shots making the labor for the Israelite slave that much more difficult, giving them the impossible task of keeping their brick-making quotas the same, but not providing them the straw to do so. We noted how the Israelite foremen identify as servants of Pharaoh, likely indicating their compromised faith, and that they basically blame Moses and Aaron for Pharaoh's actions against them. But then the central point is Yahweh's revelation of himself and how he is the answer to the plight of the sons of Israel, that he, Yahweh, Covenant Keeper is getting ready to act on their behalf as he promised the patriarchs and is preparing to reveal himself to the sons of Israel in this fashion. And after all the glorious truth that Yahweh relates to Moses, which Moses then conveys to the sons of Israel, they did not listen to, they did not hear Moses because of their shortness of spirit and cruel service. Their faith is short-sighted. All they can see is their present circumstance and don't hear Moses message of revelation about Yahweh. And so it's from that point that we pick up the story this morning. And as ever, there's plenty of instruction here for our faith that we might mature in our understanding of the person of God and in the lives we are to live as his servants and the kind of faith we are to demonstrate. 
So having had an unsuccessful mission to the sons of Israel, we read in verses 10 and 11, And Yahweh told Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to send out the sons of Israel out of his land. Yahweh is commanding Moses to deliver this message to Pharaoh, but Moses' objection in verse 12 makes some sense. Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me, and how then shall listen to me Pharaoh? And I am uncircumcised lips. So he's basically arguing that the sons of Israel aren't hearing him, then what chance does he have with Pharaoh? And even more, Moses calls himself uncircumcised lips. Now, the usual reading of that expression is that Moses is referring to uh, whatever speech impediment he suffered from, as mentioned back in chapter 4, and that's probably as good a reading and understanding as any. I suspect there's something to this intentional language that Moses, uh, something more to this intentional language that Moses is using. One scholar contends that Moses is saying this to refer to the utterly horrible way in which he speaks because of the associations generally made with the uncircumcised, and, and that could very well be. So Moses is just kind of piling up the terms as to his speech impediment or inability. Perhaps there's a sense that Moses still doesn't see, uh, deem himself qualified for the position of spokesman, that he's not properly set apart, though we the, know that Aaron is to be his mouthpiece. But then in verse 13, Yahweh speaks to Moses and Aaron and gives them a charge. He, he gives them a command. He gives them orders to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to cause to go out the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron are the ambassadors of the orders to Israel and Pharaoh, the end goal of which is the exodus from Egypt. And the question that arises from verses 10 to 13 is, who is going to be the speaker? Who's going to be Yahweh's mouthpiece? And the answer that the text goes on to provide is that it's Aaron, which is indicated by the genealogy that's given. Now, recall from the structure of the text that we're in the section entitled Yahweh's Servants. And the genealogy that's given basically establishes Aaron's qualifications and also gives a glimpse into Israel's future. If you take the time, instinct, uh, if you take the time to stop and think about it, this, this genealogy might seem a bit weird. It starts by saying, these are the heads of their father's houses, then begins with Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, and then Simeon, the secondborn, and then Levi, the thirdborn of, of Jacob. But then the genealogy never gets to Judah or any of the others. Why is that? Now, we should be agreed that this genealogy is stylized to a degree for a specific purpose because it's hardly exhaustive. But we can be sure that the details given are intentional, even if we can't always discern the reason for them. Again, the purpose of the genealogy seems pretty clear and answers the question, who's going to speak for Yahweh? Now, the list starts with Reuben, and we're given the names of his four sons and told these are the clans of Reuben, but the speaker isn't from his tribe. Why not? Well, remember Genesis 35, and Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. So he made a play for, for Jacob's power and was disqualified, so to speak. So perhaps that carries over to a certain degree here. In verse 15, we're told about the sons of Simeon, and there are six total, one of whom, Shaul, apparently born from, was born from a Canaanite woman. Now, whether we're to take that information positively or negatively is hard to tell, but Simeon's clan isn't the source of the speaker either. Why might that be the case? Well, because of the incident with Dinah and the Shechemites in Genesis 34 and Simeon's actions, along with Levi's, that caused Jacob to stink to the inhabitants of the land, and then he had to move. But then we come to Levi, 
And clearly, this is the chosen tribe, and we might immediately object that he was as guilty as Simeon, so why doesn't Yahweh pass over Levi too? Well, we don't know, but despite what happened in Genesis 34, Yahweh chooses Levi. He elects Levi to be the priestly line, which is what we go on to read about in the names that are given, whether we realize it or not at first. The names that you read here are, are pretty significant later in Israel's history. Gershom, Kohath, and Merari have a special role with regard to the tabernacle. Phineas, who is arguably mentioned at the climax of the genealogy in verse 25, plays a profoundly important role in Numbers 25. And his zeal for Yahweh uh, when he spears the Israelite man and the Midianite woman for their rebellion. And he stops the curse against Israel. And what does Yahweh do as a result? Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. It's that guy who comes last in this genealogy. To be perfectly honest, I think there's probably a good bit more going on in the the genealogy than we can unpack today. Um, The numbers of descendants listed is interesting. There's four and then six listed and then quite a few threes, a couple of twos, another four, and then this singular name of Phineas is given. Is he the primary Christ figure after a fashion? Uh, as a more general observation, there's a way to count the descendants, sans wives mentioned, so that you can come to a number 40, which isn't an insignificant, insignificant number in the Bible. But when we look at some of the details of the Levi portion, what do we observe? Well, three times ages are given. Levi, 137, 137 years. Kohath, 133 years. And then Amram... Moses and Aaron's father, also 137 years. So those are fairly long lives. Why are we given that information? Why aren't we given the ages of everyone? Also, three women or wives are mentioned in this genealogy. Yochebed, whose name means Yahweh is glory, Elishaba, and one of the daughters of Pudiel. So who is Yochebed? Well, when we cross-reference with Numbers 26 and verse 59, we find out that she was the daughter of Levi, born to him in Egypt probably quite late in his life. And yes, Jochebed marries Amram, who is her brother Kohath's son, which means what? She marries her nephew. He marries his aunt. I know that sounds really weird to us, maybe even gross, uh, but it's likely that they were somewhat close together in age. The law would later forbid such a union, but this is what the story records, and these are the father and mother of Aaron and Moses and Miriam. But notice how this makes them doubly from Levi. So there's, there's no disputing their lineage. Elisheva is the next wife mentioned, and, and, what is, and who does she marry? Well, she marries Aaron, and they have four sons. And when we do some sleuthing, where does she come from? Well, the tribe of, of Judah. So Aaron's sons are a mix of, of Judah and Levi, uh, the priestly line and the kingly line. And their son Eleazar eventually begets Phineas through his wife, the daughter of Pudiel. Now, why aren't we given her name? And who was Pudiel? We don't know. See, this is the only time his name is mentioned in all the Bible. But it does appear to be an Egyptian Semite name. And he clearly had multiple daughters. So when you, when you, you start to look at the text and ask some questions about it, instead of just getting through it as quickly as you can because the names are difficult to pronounce, you can be begin to see more of the intentionality behind it 
and may and maybe become that much more curious as to why, as to who uh, some of these people were. But again, the, the genealogy is mainly here to establish Aaron as the qualified spokesman. Of course, uh, Moses as well in his role. But here's Aaron, and he is the elder brother, and his name is mentioned first. And as already uh, we made reference to, some ages are given, reflecting long life in this clan. And what is also at the heart of this genealogy is the faithfulness of Yahweh, which is demonstrated here. You know, if we consider that the idols and false gods of Egypt, Pharaoh and the taskmasters, uh, taskmasters make up, you know, one side, they make up the bad guys, then Yahweh, Moses, and Aaron, they make up the other side, the good guys. And yes, there's a measure of surprise here in the line of Levi being chosen. But God is the elector. And as we read later on, the Levites become the priestly line through Aaron, and the Levites themselves will be the ones to take a stand with Moses after the golden calf episode in Exodus 32. They're going to prove faithful to their calling in many respects. Well, the, the genealogy interrupts the flow of the story to a degree, and there's some redundancy in the text between verses 12 and 30. But notice the information we're given in verses 26 and 27 further impresses the point of the genealogy and why it appears where it does. This Aaron and Moses, whom Yahweh said to them, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They, the ones speaking to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the sons of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. See, there's a, a subtle chiastic structure to these verses. Notice that Aaron is the first name and the last name mentioned. Then Moses and then the sons of Israel, and then speaking to Pharaoh seems to be at the center. So the text is further confirming they're the two for the job. Also notice that the sons of Israel are referred to as hosts. Well, that's military language. It can also be translated armies. So Yahweh wants the armies of Israel out of Egypt. He wants his troops. And it makes for an interesting contrast, doesn't it, that Pharaoh... Um, considers the sons of Israel to be slaves, and to Yahweh, they're his hosts, his soldiers, his armies. Some of you probably know this already, but the Hebrew word host is transliterated into English as Sabaoth, which has nothing to do with Sabbath. Uh, but even as we sang earlier in Wonders King All Glories, he is God, Sabaoth. Or when we sing Luther's version of the Sanctus, holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. This is a declaration that God is the God of hosts, the Lord of armies whether his angelic hosts or his people. And in verses 28 to 30, there's a tie back into the earlier section of the narrative. And it was on the day when Yahweh spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, saying, I am Yahweh. Speak to Pharaoh all that I am speaking to you. And Moses said to the face of Yahweh, Behold, I am uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh hear me? And notice there's an emphasis upon uh, speaking on the word, which ties into themes from previous chapters. But hopefully you also heard the declaration, I am Yahweh, which echoes back to Yahweh's revelation in chapter 6, verses 2 through 9, where that expression is used multiple times. Moses' self-titled, I am uncircumcised lips, is proclaimed again. And how does Yahweh reply? Well, basically with, with the plan that was already put in place at Sinai, but with a bit more information. He tells Moses, see, I made you as God, or I gave you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You will speak all which I command you, 
And Aaron, your brother, shall speak to Pharaoh, and he send the sons of Israel out of his land. Now, the fact that Yahweh gives Moses the role of God is interesting, and he takes on this position. But back in chapter 4 and verse 16, Yahweh tells Moses he will be as God to Aaron. And now, he is God to Pharaoh. There's also a sense in which Aaron, the older brother, serves the Moses, the younger brother. A theme we've noted on plenty of occasions before, even as their respective ages are confirmed in verse 7. Now, certainly we can say that Yahweh is putting Moses in a significant position, which should also help to curtail any tendencies we might have in reading Moses' character in too negative a light. What Moses says goes. Of course, he's getting his direct orders from Yahweh. But perhaps there's a hint to the future when the Word is made flesh, when God becomes man. Maybe that's part of the theology of the text here, a foreshadowing of the Incarnation. In verses 3 and five, uh, three to 5, we're not really given any new information. Yahweh's clear that he'll harden uh, Pharaoh's heart and that although there will be multiple signs and wonders, Pharaoh will not listen. He will not hear. And as a result, what's Yahweh going to do? I'm going to give my hand or make my hand upon Egypt to cause to bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now remember, what, what does the hand symbolize? It symbolizes power. God's going to exercise his power, not only in hardening Pharaoh's heart, but also in delivering his hosts, his people, the sons of Israel. And he's, he's piling up the terms here. Interesting, though, that the armies need to be rescued. And basically, Yahweh's going to establish that he's the boss, that he's the one in authority, and that he's the one calling the shots. But then notice what else his signs and wonders, his great acts of judgment are going to result in. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand upon Egypt and cause to bring out the sons of Israel from among them. What did Pharaoh claim back in chapter 5 and verse 2? Who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh. See, all of that is going to change. And all of Egypt will know Yahweh. And then what do we read in verse 6? And did Moses and Aaron as Yahweh commanded, them thus they did. Now I know that sounded a little awkward. And to put the verb in front of the subject is a bit awkward in English. But notice how the sentence is structured. It's, again, here's another chiasm. That begins and ends with the verb did, makes reference to Moses and Aaron, and then at the center is as Yahweh commanded. So their obedience, their immediate obedience couldn't be more clearly stated which then takes us into this final section of our text, this final scene in verses 8 to 13. Again, this this section is basically the the prelude to the first of the ten plagues. But there are a couple of interesting things to think about. First of all, ten plagues may not be the best way to think about what takes place between here and chapter 14. Some of the signs and wonders are plagues, but not necessarily all of them. The Jewish tradition refers to them as the ten strikes, And there's something to be said for thinking of these signs and wonders in this fashion. Second, it's worth considering that if we include this scene with Aaron's staff and the victory at the Red Sea in chapter 14, then there are a total of 12 miracles that take place in relation to the Exodus. One scholar places these 12 events under four categories of intensity. There's warning in 1 and 2, misery, 3 through 5, 
Economic loss and physical affliction, 6 through 9. And then death in 10 through 12. <clears throat> now, this isn't to say that the typical Christian categorization of 10 plagues is wrong, but simply that's worth thinking, uh, thinking a bit more broadly about, about what's going on here and maybe give, her, give us a fuller picture of these events. And that brings us to this, this first encounter, this first real showdown of power. And what does Yahweh instruct in verses 8 and 9? And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When says to you Pharaoh, saying, Give or make yourselves a miracle. And you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and, and send it down, or, or throw it down, or cast it down before the face of Pharaoh, and it will be a dragon. Now, most translations read serpent, which is understandable and tenable. But we need to understand that this is a different word than what's used in chapter 4 of the staff becoming a serpent for Moses. It seems reasonable to conclude that if this word was simply to be serpent, then the same term would be used, but it's not. Rather, the word tanin is used. And its first occurrence in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 21 in relation to the creation of the great sea creatures, the great sea monsters, the great sea dragons or dinosaurs. It's a term found three times in the Psalms, as well as significantly in Isaiah 27.1, where the dragon imagery is clearer, or in Isaiah 51.9, which has direct allusions to Egypt. The term appears once in Jeremiah, comparing Nebuchadnezzar to a sea monster swallowing Zion, and two times in Ezekiel in reference to Pharaoh and the Egypt of that time. Uh, the term can also be rendered as adder, a type of, of serpent, and some contend that a crocodile is in view here, and that could be. If the idea of dragon is too fantastical, I suppose that's understandable, but the behemoth of Job 40 is most certainly a dinosaur of some type, and the leviathan of chapter 41, a sea monster or sea dragon or dinosaur of some kind, who has no parallel in all of God's creatures, and is arguably the king of creatures. And we often think of the lion as the king of beasts, but in biblical analogy here, for our purposes this morning, it's this tanin, it's this sea monster or dragon. And if we were to take the time to look at the details about Leviathan and the use of tanin in Scripture, then uh, the, the case for some type of dragon becomes clear. But all of this imagery comes into play here in what transpires in Pharaoh's court. Let's keep reading. And went Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, and they did thus as Yahweh commanded. <clears throat> and and sent down Aaron his staff before the face of Pharaoh and before the faces of his servants, and it became a dragon. And called Pharaoh the wise men and the sorcerers, and they did also thus the magicians of Egypt by their secret arts thus. And sent down a man his rod, and they were dragons, and, and swallowed up the staff of Aaron their staffs. And hardened was the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as spoke Yahweh. And notice a few things. Once again, Moses and Aaron's immediate obedience is on display. And there's the assumption in the text that Pharaoh asked for signs, and that's what's taking place. Second, we might be surprised that Egyptian magicians could so easily turn their staffs into dragons. But this wasn't some sort of parlor trick. You know, they didn't have snakes in a catatonic, in a catatonic state, uh, perfectly stiff, appearing to be rods, and then coming out of that state, and then slithering all over the place. Now, what we have here is the display of the satanic demonic power that, well, should come no, as no surprise to us um, as being present then in the ancient world. There will be uh, other similar examples in the weeks to come, 
And we shouldn't try to explain them away by science, but accept that there are supernatural forces at work here. Third, the staff is referred to as Aaron's staff, the same staff that was Moses' staff, which was also considered the staff of God. There's no reason to believe that this is a different staff. Aaron is the one now bearing the shepherd's tool, this technology that pictures Israel's calling. Fourth, notice that the text doesn't say that Aaron's dragon swallowed up the other dragons, though that's the obvious implication, but explicitly that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. What does that mean? Well, probably the best way to take it is to understand the staffs as picturing power, uh, maybe even rule to a certain degree, and that Aaron is the, Aaron's is the more powerful, that Moses, Yahweh, is in charge. But still even more, consider what's pictured here. The, in the beginning, God made the sea dragons, the sea monsters, and they were good. So there were good dragons. Of course, as part of the fall, dragons, serpents uh, became associated with Satan, and that imagery is carried throughout the Bible, even into the New Testament, particularly Revelation 12. And instead of understanding dragons and dinosaurs as pictures of God, in a sinful world, in a sinful world they're pictures of men trying to be God or trying to usurp his place. That ties back in with the, the imagery of dragons and this term being used in association with rulers and powers and things. You know, even as we read in, in Daniel, various beasts represent powers or rulers. Well, that applies to the imagery of dragons as well. And so what's pictured for us in this scene? Aaron's staff is the, the greater dragon that devours the others. Or still more, Yahweh is the greater dragon that devours the others. He's the true dragon. See, I know that sounds a bit odd to us because, again, we so readily associate uh, the dragons and serpents with Satan, and rightly so. But this is part of the implication of our text this morning, and we don't need to apologize for it. And in many respects, it makes for even more powerful imagery and foreshadows what's to come. The true dragon, the true power, achieves total victory. These lesser rulers and powers are devoured by him. The imagery of verse 12 is profound. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The next and only other time that verb is used, swallowed up, is in Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses when he declares... Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Now think about it. Pharaoh and his chariot army were swallowed in the Red Sea. Yahweh, the, the great sea dragon, opened wide his jaws and swallowed them whole, bringing his enemies and the enemies of his people to death in a great act of judgment. Interestingly enough, the Greek word that's used for swallow up in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so this, this word makes some significant appearances in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 5.9, we have the apostles warning to be watchful because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour or to swallow up. Same term. In Revelation 12, just mentioned a minute ago, there's the interesting imagery that John conveys. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up 
opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of excess imagery there, but we'll move on for today. But even more profoundly, and perhaps you can already guess, this same word is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he writes, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus, the good dragon, the greater dragon, the true dragon, has done it. And what text is Paul quoting here? Isaiah 25. And what do we read there? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. See, brothers and sisters, that's the reality in which we now live. This is what the Lord has accomplished. And consider some further implications of this uh, in our text from Exodus this morning. See, the episode of the dragon was a prelude to the war that Yahweh was going to wage on Egypt. And ultimately win at the Red Sea a victory that was sure and certain. But the decisive victory in that same war was achieved by Christ on Calvary. And the reality of his victory over sin and death should be immensely encouraging to us. If death has been swallowed up, then what do we need to fear? If death has been swallowed up, then we can can be all the more sure of the final promised victory at last. And that being true, then what about now? What about the in-between? What about the persecutions we read about in the persecuted church prayer calendar? What about the news headlines and seeming collapse of society? What about the tyranny that exists in our own country and in other countries of the world? Well, consider that opposition should hardly be a surprise, nor hardness of heart, nor that there are those bent on the destruction of others for selfish gain. There are plenty of other pharaohs running around today. And we can be sure that our Lord Jesus, our King, will summarily deal with them as He sees fit, whether in mercy or or in justice or in judgment in this life or the next. But let's also be sure that Jesus' decisive victory gives us reason and purpose even that we should be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that such work is not in vain. That's the logic of Paul's argument there in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, as our lives are lived in the Lord, as we pursue obedience to His commands, as we engage in the lives of vocation and service to which we are called, 
then all that we do has purpose because of Christ's decisive victory as displayed in the resurrection and, in the, and on the cross. See, when you go to work, when you play with your kids, change diapers, instruct your children, read the same story for the hundredth time because they love it so much, make dinner, do laundry, take out the trash, read a book, plant a garden, mow the lawn, and a thousand other things, they all have reason and purpose because Jesus has won. You know, similar to Moses and Aaron, our job is to obey the Lord's command to do as he instructs. This is so much of what constitutes the life of faith. And perhaps we wish for there to be something more exciting for us to do. But as we give ourselves to fidelity to God's word, our lives will be anything but boring. Far from it. Really, such a life is full of blessing and adventure, of growing in a greater understanding of the world that God has made and our calling in it, of the life of maturity to which we could to, to which we should aspire, and the work of ministry which belongs to God's people. But maybe you're still not quite convinced, or maybe it's just well, it's just been such a hard week for whatever reasons, or you're just exhausted, or the trials which you're presently having to endure are significant, and the prospect of doing it again or going for a, a Going on for another week just, well, it just seems rather daunting. What if that's where your faith is today? Well, it's a good thing you're here because this is where you, you need to be the most. And where is that? Well, not just in a school building in Franklin, Tennessee, but you're on a mountain. Even the mountain we heard about earlier from Isaiah 25. And what's provided on that mountain? Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. See, you, you come to the mountain in order to partake of this feast, the feast of our Lord, consisting of bread and wine. And what do you do to the bread and wine? You take it and eat it. You, you take it and drink it. You take and swallow up the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, there's a sense he's first swallowed you up in his mercy. You're in him, and he's well pleased to partake of you as a sacrifice that he consumes. You're incorporated into him. But you can swallow up Christ because he's swallowed up death. And each and every week, as you partake of these elements, that reality is proclaimed again and again. And that should be a great boon for your faith to consider. And so as you are sent out again from this mountain, go and give yourself to the various labors and occupations which the Lord has set before you. And may you go to them with a renewed sense of purpose. Death has no power over you. And so go work and serve. Die to yourself as you follow after the victorious Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be pleased to impress all the more your word into our hearts, into our thinking and into the lives lived out before you. May we do so to your honor and glory, strengthened by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.